The immense pressure to his veins and arteries from the chokehold stopped blood flowing to and from his brain, cutting his oxygen supply and leaving him gasping for air. Eric Gardner pleaded 11 times before his life was violently taken away by US law enforcement officers on the 17th of July, 2014. His cause of death, suffocation. New York City's medical examiner office had even ruled the tragic incident as a homicide. Gardner's unconscious body laid on the sidewalk for seven minutes as ambulances arrived. He was pronounced dead one hour later. Police brutality that caused Gardner's death is one contemporary example of what black rights movements have been fighting for for over the decades. His last uttering words, I can't breathe, galvanised the Black Lives Matter movement to take on the baton and continue to fight the long-awaiting struggle towards ending racial discrimination completely. These concerns about racialized policing have not been new to society. Racism has shown to be a driving force in the brutal treatment of society's criminals and those who are suspected to be. This constant criminalization of black people has subjected the community as potential threats in society. Don't believe me? George Floyd, 2020, I Can't Breathe, Javier Amber, 2019, I Can't Breathe, Manuel Ellis, Brian Williams, Christopher Lowe, Derek Scott, 2014, I Can't Breathe, and even the UK police, who Simon Francis lost his life under custody of, I Can't Breathe. With most of these cases being labelled as homicides by the respective medical examiner officers, the handling of these men all have things in common. It raises the concerns of the intense over-policing of black people, as well as the underlying systemic racism that persists in law enforcement. This podcast will be exploring this issue of systemic racism and how oppression has been manifested into US law enforcement. From Republican leaders such as Donald Trump to the banning of critical race theory in states and the recent 2021 UK race report, systemic racism has been denied to exist in society's institutions problems of inequality are often waived as having bad apples within departments, as opposed to the racialized hierarchies that have been embedded historically. Professor Joe Fegan develops this theory in his book, Systemic Racism, A Theory of Oppression. He argues that white oppression has been manifested in all major societal institutions, and systemic racism is a better way of understanding centuries of racial oppression. Discussing this term with us further is Professor Eduardo Menietta. He teaches philosophy at Penn State University and has worked alongside the pioneering political activist, Angela Davis. I think this term is extremely important because it helps us sift through a lot of misperceptions and misrepresentations of the nature of racism. The more important aspect of the term is that it helps us see that racism is something that is not simply in the head of racist, that racism is part of the fabric of our institutions. And so to say that racism is institutional, that we have systemic institutional racism, is to say that racism is capillary, suffused, built into um, some of our most important institutions. And that even when you might not be a racist personally, you nonetheless inhabit institutions that have inherited, carry, and perpetuate racism from the most elemental to the most sophisticated ones, from healthcare 
to housing, to education, to how people are processed within the criminal justice system, to obviously the most extreme cases, prisons and the death penalty, which is part of systemic racism. There are root causes to these long-term racial inequalities and structural impediments that make it difficult for equality movements to progress. Movements are often calling for police institutions to take accountability. However, protective legal doctrines such as qualified immunity and the blue wall of silence makes it difficult for police officers who have shown misconduct to face charges. Statistics from Mapping Police Violence stated that from 2013 to 2019, 99% of police killings were not charged. And 2021 marks the first groundbreaking case where in Minnesota, a white police officer, Derek Chauvin, was charged for murdering a black man, George Floyd. Such changes and progress are particularly rare, despite the extent of these racial inequalities. According to the NAACP, African-Americans are incarcerated five times the rate of whites, and police violence is the sixth leading cause of death for black men ages 25 to 29 across all age groups. In order to explore why policing and law enforcement is affecting the black community so disproportionately, it is important to examine the history of the racial caste system in America. Part one, colonial America. History shows society's current racial order to be a remnant of what colonial structures left behind. As argued by Dr. Evelyn Nanako Glenn, colonialism should be understood as an ongoing structure rather than a past historical event. However, you may be wondering how, when we don't live in the same colonial society anymore, there has been changes. Well, as socialist Annabel Keanu makes evident in his work, there is no modernity without coloniality. While modernity highlights society's development, society is developed in a way that still preserves the white supremacy colonialism created, therefore behaving as an enduring structure. This dynamic is what legal scholar Reva Siegel has dubbed as preservation through transformation, a process which white privilege is maintained through the rules and rhetoric change. Over time, colonial spaces have shifted and molded into different forms, beginning from the slave plantation to Jim Crow, to the rise of the urban ghetto and the prison industrial complex. An interesting way to understand these changes is if we take the analogy of how bacteria functions with antibiotics. Bacteria undergo mutations which can provide resistance to antibiotics, and it's these resistant strains that survive and continue to cause infection. Likewise, colonial structures have not been completely eradicated. Some structures have resisted or changed in form, all contributing towards inequality and the historical process of colonialism. So how was the US racial caste system created? And what legitimized the state to have such rules and control over certain bodies? As modern scientific research acknowledges, race was neither biologically determined. American biotechnologist Craig Venter observed and announced this at the White House in June 2000. He said, the concept of race has no genetic or scientific basis. Originally, race was considered as a marker of kingship during the 16th century. However, this shifted towards physical indicators due to the rise of global capitalism and the Enlightenment period. This social construction of race was a way in which planters distributed power and maintained their supremacy. The Bacon's Rebellion is a notable example of this. In 1676, a white property owner, Nathaniel Bacon, united slaves, indentured servants and poor whites in a revolutionary attempt to overthrow the planter elite. 
It is commonly thought as the first armed insurrection by American colonists against the British colonial government. This multiracial alliance of bond workers and slaves threatened planters who then adopted intense strategies in order to protect their superior status and economic position. Planters began importing more African slaves who were not familiar with the English language and therefore less likely to form alliances with poor whites. Constructing race also facilitated the planter's strategy of racial bribe. This is where the planter class extended privileges to poor whites to divide them from black slaves. White settlers were given more access to Native American lands and white servants were given the role of slave patrols to police slaves. A theory that explores the controlling nature and surveillance over certain types of bodies is Michel Foucault's analysis of biopower. Biopower examines how institutions such as healthcare and prisons govern the human body and Foucault treats these institutions as microcosms of broader systemic control. He quotes, biopower is an explosion of numerous and diverse techniques for achieving the subjugation of bodies and the control of populations. Through this theory, Foucault considers the emergence of state racism. He argues how biopolitics creates an idea of racial purity. This purification establishes a socialized norm where those who don't fall into it are directly punished. It provides the state with a justification for the treatment of certain bodies. And so in this case, racism becomes indispensable for sovereignty to exert power over death. Foucault uses this theory to explain racial control in Nazi Germany. However, we can apply this to colonial America. During the 18th century, when colonial exploitation was expanding, pseudoscience also developed. It connected physical features, behaviours and civil rights towards race to justify the already existing social norms of slavery. The view that black people were savages was often linked to biological terms. Distinction between arms, brain size and height created a narrative that black people were threats in society. The Enlightenment period solidified these definitions of race by linking the racial hierarchy as the natural order. Slaves were defined as three-fifths of a man under the US founding document. This stereotype that black people were savages and less than human rationalized the brutal treatment of slaves as well as the murder that carried out following emancipation. It can be argued that such biopolitical power in colonial America created essentialist beliefs which set the tone for the prejudice and implicit biases society sees today. The police, in the United States at least, has been one of the primary institutions, if not device, to enforce this racial biopolitics, beginning with the fact that some of the historical sources of police in the United States go back to the slave patrols. In fact, that's one of the earliest forms of police in the United States. The slave patrols then become the police that then becomes mutated into the police that is regulating where blacks go in the cities. The police is extremely entangled with the history of race in the United States. Part two the growth of racialized policing. Picture yourself finally gaining and living a life of freedom, having spent years in torture and agony, working away from family and constantly fearing for your life. Now picture this being slowly stripped away. This hope and promise of freedom is broken down. It was never really what it seemed. This was what life was like for black people in the South after the emancipation of slavery in 1863. Initially, the Reconstruction period saw some improvements to black lives. 
the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment, passed by federal states, extended civil rights to black people. It saw a period where black people were allowed to vote, acquire the land of former owners, and seek their own employment. There was, however, a growing opposition to these changes by former slave owners and white people in the South. Black people were caught in the middle of debates to maintain racial order, and one way of controlling this was through policing. Expressed by one planter in Alabama, we have the power to pass stringent police laws to govern Negroes. This is a blessing for they must be controlled in some way or white people cannot live among them. Dr. Lydia Plath, Associate Professor of US History at the University of Warwick, discusses this further. Um, so the early years of Reconstruction are quite radical. There's quite a lot of opportunities for black people. But then the backlash of the white South kind of becomes increasingly into effect. And that's where the over-policing comes from. And you can see this really early. So for example, in 1865, right when the, the war was ending, states like Mississippi put into place what were called black codes. And the black codes are some of the earliest laws about policing free black people in the South. And what they said were things like, you have to be employed. If you leave your employer, you're considered to be a criminal and you can be arrested. You have to, they implemented curfews in some places. So you cannot be out at night. You cannot be drunk. And all these things that black people should be able to do as free people, but weren't allowed to do. And it criminalised a whole bunch of really normal behaviour for black people. And despite the attempts by the North to kind of change what's going on in the South, those become embedded into Southern life in the years after emancipation. Slave chains were disguised in the form of prison cells. Mass incarceration was taking a new form of enslavement, and this was all upheld by criminalising petty crimes and using available exceptions in the law. The 13th Amendment provided the criminal justice system with a loophole. Slavery was outlawed except as punishment for a crime. This paved the way for prison labour in the States. So slavery is an economic system. So enslaved people are worth money to their enslavers. When they are freed, those enslavers lose a bunch of money. And so if you think about it in economic terms, from the perspective of former slaveholders, what they want to do is get free labour back in one way or another. And so by criminalising black people, what they can then do is charge them, arrest them, charge them, convict them of crimes, and then force them to work for free under what was called convict leasing. And convict leasing becomes a really big part of the Southern criminal justice system by the late 19th century. So one of the most famous books on it is called Worse Than Slavery, because there is no incentive for white business owners, people who are employing these, employing in inverted commas, these, uh, these black convicts, to treat them at all well. So they work, literally work people to death and then just get another criminal. And so the criminal justice system feeds into this economic exploitation that means that black people are still having to work for free when they've been arrested on really, really minor infractions that we would not now consider even things that were illegal. This racialized exploitation of prison labor during Jim Crow is also mirrored through the prison industrial complex that America has today. Angela Davis develops this idea. The privatization of prisons today reminisce historical efforts to create a profitable punishment industry based on the new supply of free black male labourers in the aftermath of the Civil War. Convict leasing has its contemporary parallels with companies such as the CCA and Wackenhunt who have been profiting off prisons. So what is the issue with this? America currently has a mass incarceration problem and these major corporations that rely on prisons help to sustain this Despite contributing to 5% of the world's population, 25% of the prison population is in America, 
with black people being disproportionately affected. Davis argues that black bodies are considered dispensable within the free world, but as major source of profit in the prison world. There is significant evidence where law enforcement is shown to be targeting black people directly in the free world and for profitable means in the prison world. In 2015, it was reported that a South Florida police department was using black faces in a shooting target practice. In the wake of mass incarceration, events such as the war on drugs created a political tool which sought to target and criminalize the black and anti-war community. Former Nixon domestic policy chief, John L. Lickman, who was part of the scandal said, we could arrest their leaders and raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. A changing measure anti-police brutality movements are often calling for is the defunding of the police. One reason for this is based on the claims that officers undergo pressure to increase their number of arrests in order to ensure their units will be funded. Edwin Raymond, an eight-year veteran of the NYPD, alleged in a lawsuit that the NYPD were using quota systems for arrests and there was pressure to target predominantly minority neighborhoods. Racism is systemic in US law enforcement as there is a recurring interest and economic incentive for officials to enforce policies which maintain the racial order that shaped America historically. Despite the work of organizations and charities to improve the problems of inequality, any deep threats made to white supremacy sparks calls for law and order. President Obama created a commission to look at shootings. Trayvon Martin, for instance, Tamila Rice and George Brown and so on. And the government, the Department of Justice, issued several federal reports and they made pages and pages of recommendations. None of this was implemented under Trump. The great challenge is this notion that if you challenge, if you criticize the police, then de facto you are against law and order. And that has been the message that the Republicans have been using. Throughout history, we see repeatedly anti-police brutality movements being deflected, criminalized, and painted as threats to law and order. And this is even when protests are carried out peacefully and lawfully. The Black Panther Party is an example of this. Led by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, the party decided to take a stand against police brutality. Exercising their constitutional right, Panther patrols held guns and maintained a legal distance when observing police arrests. In response, the Mulford Act was passed in 1967. This was an ironic move by the Conservative Party as it prevented the public carrying of loaded arms. The bill was drafted to disarm the Black Panther Party. The criminalization of black rights movements is also evident in the disparity of how similar movements are treated. You saw the same thing, you know, almost in the midst of that of last summer, right, with when white Michigan suburbanites and others went to the capital in Michigan and the state of Michigan carrying arms, right, to demand that the state open up from COVID restrictions in the middle of last summer. And they were treated much differently, right, than protests for black equality. And so it, it goes back to those the kind of structure of white supremacy in society, the threat to that racial status quo, the presumptions of guilt and innocence, right, of the ways that those have been racialized over American history. And then, of course, it comes down to power and privilege, the ways that, you know, white privilege and who holds power in society, right, sees African-American protests. That was Dr. Max Falker-Cantor. 
He is assistant professor of history at Ball State University and is the author of the book Policing Los Angeles, Race Resistance and the Rise of the LAPD. Part 3. Controversy. The main arguments against systemic racism suggest that problems to inequality are merely due to bad apples in departments, as well as the issue that there is a great difficulty to measure whether a police officer is being racially biased. However, the debate of systemic racism is to focus on the historic racialized structures and how it influences our institutions today. Understanding the history of policing is important as it exposes the reoccurring patterns of broader systemic control. Repeated grievances shown by black protest movements and the now contemporary structures of prisons and ghettos are notably the byproducts of systems that sought to maintain racial order. The, the bad apples kind of claim one is just these bad apples that we need to get out of these departments. That's the problem, right? But what's, what shows actually the way the reasons why that is a, is a false narrative and then also shows this systemic racism within departments is that that bad apples defense has been one that police departments have used for the last 60 years, if not going back, you know, all the way through the 20th century is that any time there are these moments, like one of the prominent examples from my work is, of course, the Rodney King beating is Daryl Gates in that moment said, this Rodney King beating is an aberration. It's not the norm. It's an aberration. But if you went back, you're like, well, three years before that, two years before that, they, the police, the LAPD ransacked these apartments on 41st Street and Dalton Avenue in, in LA in search of drugs in which they like tore people's apartments apart, leaving them uninhabitable. And before that, they killed 12, 16 people using chokehold in the course of like five or six years, 12 of whom were black. Or in 1979, they killed Eula Love, a, a, you know, a 39-year-old black woman, single mother, who's like gunned down in her front yard. And so you kind of go back and Gates then, you know, uses the, the bad apples aberration. Oh, this is an aberration. It's just a few bad apples. We just need to root out those individuals. But what you start to see when you see all these historical examples is that there is something more deeper, more systemic going on. Because if it was just bad apples, there's an easy solution and that you've seen people call for it again and again. I think what you can see then is, you know, the bad apples is a way to, again, deflect from the kind of having a, a kind of deeper discussion. Dr. Cantor makes an interesting point here. Since there is a tendency to deflect from this issue, it's important to continue to acknowledge and have deeper discussions about the inherent problems to racism that have shaped our institutions and ultimately our way of life. As biopower theory and scientific research shows, race is not a skin colour or a way of identifying people. It is a system of power that was constructed to create particular relations between institutions and those who represent a racialized group. Systemic racism within institutions such as the police is the root problem. It is the core of the bad apple that impacts issues of racial inequality. We therefore must engage in discussions rather than develop an instant reaction to deflect. Systemic racism affects all members in society and therefore requires a global effort to act against it. We all swim in this water, right? We all live in a society that is systemically racist. We all see and hear and read racist things, it saturates everything. So we can't try and kind of remove ourselves from society. That's not the option. The option is to try and change how society functions. That's why Black Lives Matter and other activists are 
focusing on being anti-racist, right? To acknowledging where your biases are, to noticing when you're thinking something that is problematic and then acting against it. So it's more about what people are doing than it is what they actually are feeling and thinking. Um, and that's probably more useful for me as a way to think about it. While many may have viewed the verdict of the George Floyd case to be a step in the right direction, essentialist views of the black community ingrained from history still lingers in the minds of many and more dangerously members in power. There are laws that support racial order, policies that enforce over-policing and institutions that protect misconduct. 2021 marks the first time since 400 years of slavery that in Minnesota a white police officer is charged for murdering a black man. This case shows that there is more progress that needs to be done. We must be examining underlying causes rather than scratching at its surface. So as Anthony D'Angelo says, when solving problems, dig at the roots instead of just hacking at the leaves.